I'd like to invite you this evening to turn with me in your Bibles to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And we'll be reading Exodus 34 as well as Lord's Day 4 from our Heidelberg Catechism under the heading of Objections to God's Justice. Objections to God's Justice. We'll read the first nine verses, but our focus will be on verses 5 through 9. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word this evening. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the mount, come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with, stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let uh, the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. This is the word of the Lord, and may we receive it this evening with a believing heart. And then we'll turn also to Lord's Day 4 in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is on page 204 of our forms and prayers as well. There's a bulletin insert where you can read from there as well. So beginning in question 9, I'll read the question and we'll invite you to respond in unison. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in His law what man is unable to do? No. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin that we are born with as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but He is also just, His justice demands that sin committed against His supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, 
eternal punishment of body and soul. Dear congregation, in Exodus 34, we come in to a passage hot on the heels of some controversy in Israel in the wilderness. In Exodus chapter 32, we're reminded of the golden calf incident where Israel falls into the sin of idolatry and bows down to a graven image. Moses is so infuriated with this brazen act of sinfulness by Israel after salvation that he smashes those two tablets of stone and has to go back up the mountain. And when he goes back up the mountain and he returns to that manifestation of God's glory on the mount, he also prays in chapter 33, the most boldest of Christian prayers. In verse 18, he says to the Lord, show me your glory. Moses had enjoyed such a sweet communion with God such blessedness as Israel's intercessor that he desired from God a token or a sign of God's love for him. But Moses is just a man. So God tells him in 33 verse 20, I can't show you my person. I can't show you my essence. It would be too much for him. He would surely die. But in Exodus 34, the Lord does give him a sign. God descends in a cloud. He puts him in the cleft of the rock. He covers him with his hand. And the token and the sign of God's love for his people, for Moses, is that God defines who he is for him. Like a blind man who can't see the beauty of his wife. And so he needs her to be defined for him. God defines himself for Moses. He illustrates who he is. He depicts himself for a man who can't behold his glory. And how does he depict himself? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, on the third and the fourth generation. This is how God defines Himself. I wonder, congregation, if we were to go out onto the streets of Grand Rapids or you were to go uh, to the towns where you're from and you were to ask people to define God, what would they say? Would they give you this definition of God? Okay, maybe that's unfair. I invite you then to ask your Christian brothers and sisters to define God. Will they give you this definition of Yahweh? You see, it seems to me that 
the common temptation in our society is that we want to depict God or we want to imagine God to be sort of like a benevolent Santa Claus who exists somewhere apart from us, who has purely goodwill towards all people and just distributes gifts. Or we'd like to think of God as a jovial grandpa or as an opa for my Dutch friends. Again, you can chuckle. That's okay. But God here defines Himself, yes, as a God of mercy, but He is also a God of justice. Justice, of course, has become a trigger word in our culture today. Etymologically, that means when you study the nature of a word, it originally meant to refer to what is right. If something was just, that meant that it was right. But it has become now a synonym for fairness. Think of the words social justice, racial justice, whatever else justice might be attached to this day. It doesn't mean what's right so often as it means what's fair. But as Christians, we need to redefine what this word means today. You see, for God, and according to His Word, justice is not about what's fair. Justice is about what is right. And we know this is true. As Christians, we know if we don't teach our children what is right, well, they'll inevitably be bad behaved. We know that if our nation doesn't have a proper justice system, it will descend into truth. Or, excuse me, descend into chaos, I should say. But the problem with justice in our culture today, the reason people don't like justice, is because in justice there is a double truth. When justice says something is wrong, it's also saying something else is good. If something is evil, it vindicates something else as good. So when justice says adultery is wrong, it affirms that a loving and faithful marriage is what's right. If justice says murder is wrong, it says that we also must protect our neighbor from harm and seek their good. If justice says do not take the Lord's name in vain, it's not just saying don't blaspheme, it's saying that we must reverence God, etc., etc. Whatever it might be, whether it's secular or it's biblical. Justice has this double truth. And so justice then, as I like this definition, is the punishment of wrongdoing, but it is also the vindication of what is good. The punishment of wrongdoing, but the vindication of what is good. But we can bristle at this. And we might have questions like, well, is God being unjust if He requires something of us that we cannot do? And then we might ask questions like, well, couldn't God just look the other, other way? And why are we talking about justice? I thought God was merciful. We will have questions like this. And Lord's Day 4, the final Lord's Day before we move into part 2, Lord's Days 5 through 31, seeks to answer those objections. You have four objections in question 9, 10, and 11. 
Is God unjust? Could God not look the other way? And I thought God was merciful. These are our points this evening, but they are also the questions which our catechism seeks to answer. So we turn to the first question, question 9. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in His law what man is unable to do? It is simply put like this, is God unjust for requiring man to do something that is outside of His power? That's the sense of question 9. This may seem somewhat abstract to some of us, but this is a question that we all will face in our lives as Christian people. Many people will ask questions such as, think of the doctrine of election. Could you imagine a father who favors a few children but disowns the rest? That's an objection you'll hear from time to time. What about the parts of the world that don't hear the Gospel? How can they be held responsible for not hearing? How can God make me accountable for something that is beyond our control? And so the catechism asks that question. God is requiring us something that, he, that we are unable to do. But we should pause here before we even look at the answer and consider this question. What is it that God is requiring of you in His law? If you remember, a few weeks ago we looked at Lord's Day 2 the subject of God's law. We know that God's law has various commands. There's 613 laws. But Christ gets to the center, gets to the heart of the law. What is God asking of us in the obedience of the law? And Christ says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. He says that is the spirit of the whole Old Testament. The law and the prophets call you to love God and to love your neighbor. So allow me to rephrase question 9. And hopefully this will illumine the question for you. Does God do man an injustice by requiring that we love Him. Does God do man an injustice by requiring that we love one another? What is your answer? Well, I hope your answer is that that is not unjust. Because we know in our heart of hearts that we do not refuse to love God because we are not able to. We refuse to love God because we do not want to. Hermann Veldkamp, a author of one of the commentaries on the Heidelberg Catechism, says the deepest cause is not that we do not have the power to love God, but that we love ourselves more than we love God. So when the Catechism refers to inability, what it's actually referring to is man's unwillingness. You see that in the question or in the answer, excuse me. Does God require uh, or is doesn't God do an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? The answer, no, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Referring again to what we talked about last week. Man's original state. 
Man, when he was first made in the Garden of Eden, had the ability to keep the law. That is, he could love the Lord his God perfectly. He could love his neighbor perfectly. He had a free will. He was perfectly righteous and holy and made in the image of God. But the current status of man is that we are not able not to sin because of the fall. And we come this evening, the catechism forces us to deal with this question, one of the most complicated questions, the question of original sin. You know, we live in a radically individualistic culture. Today, people have Facebook and Instagram and blogs and the whole idea of these social media networks is that we can promote ourselves, right? And we can promote our own ideas. We want to be unique. We want to have a different identity and an existence apart from our family and existence apart from our friends. Yet if you go to a non-Western country, you will find a different view. It's changing. But it used to be that there was a corporate view. There was a joint view of life. If you were to even go to one person's house, you might find generations and generations of people all living under one roof. They shared responsibility with one another. And we see that this is still the case in many different cultures where responsibility is shared. And Scripture presents both of these views as actually something that's accurate and helpful for helping us understand the views of sin. Scripture speaks of individual sin and a corporate aspect to sin. We are Original sin is the corporate sin. And then in question 10 where it talks about actual sins, that's your individual sins. So now we get to the hard question. What is original sin? And thanks for going easy on the intern. I'm going to speak from the Reformed view. Because I'm a Reformed man. But the Reformed view of original sin is that Adam did not exist in the garden merely as just the first created man but that Adam existed in the garden as a, represent, as a representative head of the whole of the human race. I'll say that again. The Reformed view is that Adam existed in the garden not merely as just the first created man, but as the one who represents the whole of the human race. And so that's why when He falls, His fall is given to all of us, spiritually speaking. Now don't think this is too abstract. There might be some of you here who are saying, this is too far above me, I'm just going to check out from here on out. It's not that abstract. Because Jesus Christ is also a representative of a people who were not physically present at the cross, but yet who by faith receive His righteousness. It's the same idea. 
that Adam had a special place in history in the Garden of Eden and He represented us in the Garden of Eden. He was the best of us. And when, we, when He fell, we fell with Him, spiritually speaking. Here's a helpful rhyme. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. So it's not that we were physically present. We didn't bite the fruit. We were not standing there with Adam when Eve had a conversation with the serpent. It's not that we were physically present and consented to Adam's action. We are not sinners merely because we have flesh as if being born of a woman was what gives you sin. But the Reformed understanding is that Adam represents us and in his fall, God imputes. That is, He gives the guilt of sin and unrighteousness to those He represents. I hope you're tracking with me. But this is outlined actually in our Bible passage that we read this evening in Exodus 34, verse 7. The Lord says this, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, who is the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There is a temptation when we read this passage, which of course is read also in Exodus 20, which we read very often on Sunday mornings, there is a temptation to just assume we know what this means. But you should pause and ask a question. Will I be punished for the sins of my dad? Will I be punished for the sins of my mom? The Bible doesn't teach that. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet. And he answers this question, Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Answering the question, will I be punished for the sins of my father? It says, the soul whose sins shall die. The Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon Himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon Himself. Jesus likewise in John chapter 9, verses 1 and 3, when the disciples saw a man who was blind from birth, remember the disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Christ's answer is, it's not that this man's sin or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. The Bible teaches that you will be responsible for your sins. And your parents will be responsible for their sins. You will be responsible for your righteousness. Your parents will be responsible for their own righteousness. And that's referring to your actual sins your individual sins. But the Scripture likewise in Exodus 34, Exodus chapter 20, and also Romans 5, says that we also receive a collective punishment. 
a communal punishment, a corporate punishment in Adam's fall, a spiritual punishment for being part of our covenant parents, Adam and Eve. That's original sin. So you're not punished for the sins of mom and dad, their actual sins, but we do receive punishment for Adam and Eve's corporate sins. You see this in Romans 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world in death through sin, thus death spread to all men. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in their condemnation. I will admit that this is a question that has perplexed theologians for thousands of years, but dealing with the biblical data seems to lead me to the conclusion that the catechism is right. That it's not that God is requiring us something that we could never do, but we were created good with the ability to keep the law and at the instigation of the devil that ability has been taken away due to original sin. You see what the catechism is doing is with, with this objection is God unjust. It's actually pointing the mirror back at your soul. You see, we might nod our heads to the question, right, yes, God is unjust. Yeah, how could He? But it shows you that the Bible's own words are not that God is unjust, but that we have been unjust. Our covenant parents have been unjust. We should be humbled by this. We must beware of spiritual arrogance. That's a word of application for us this, morning, this evening. Beware of spiritual arrogance. There is a temptation to think because we are some of the smartest people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. And that's a true statement. There's a temptation to think we are enlightened children. We are Americans. At least some of us are. Or Canadians. Right? We put a man on the moon. We split the atom. Medical science continues to astound me. Is there anything, you might hear people say, that we don't know? Is there anything we can't do? The answer is yes. There's lots we don't know. And there's lots we can't do. And that's not only biblical history talking, secular history talks that way as well. We actually know very little. And we have made and we continue to make mistakes. But the one who knows all things and the one who has never made a mistake is the Lord God Almighty. And He is the one who has been wronged by us. And if you don't think He has been wronged, I want to tell you to look at the cross. And you can see how man has treated God. It's not we who have been wronged, but it's God who has been wronged. And so some might say, some hard-hearted people, well then God needs to change. But to ask God to change is to ask God to cease to be God. 
God is the one who acts, not the one who is acted upon. When we expect God to change His person, we want Him to change His justice to make an exception for us. We want Him to change His decrees. What we're really saying is we don't like who God is. So I want to challenge you, my friends, to read the whole counsel of God and take it for what it is. I'm not saying you'll find every single answer to every single question, but read Genesis through Revelation and the narrative that you will come away with is yes, God is a God of justice. He is a God of justice. So, we're, in a sense, nailed to the wall. Caught red-handed. The second objection the catechism might suggest to us is, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? You might ask it, put it another way, as I have. Well, can't God just look the other way? And even if I have sinned, and I'm part of this communal guilt, and I'm part of this actual guilt, my sins that I deal with every day, Maybe he could just look the other way and sweep it under the rug. But look at Exodus 34, verse 5. What does it say? By no means clearing the guilty. Is there anything we want to hear less than that? Catechism has proved that this original sin was a premeditated crime. We're legally caught. And our only hope to get off the hook seems to be that God would let our disobedience and let our rebellion go unpunished. But think about it, my friends. How would you feel if someone committed a heinous crime against you? And the judge, rather than punishing them, that criminal, for some reason, looked the other way. Is that justice? It's not justice. You would call it an injustice if you were the one wrong. So when sinners say in Psalm 94, the Lord doesn't see, the God of Jacob doesn't understand, they're saying, can't God look the other way? He must look the other way. He must not care. But the Scriptures and the Catechism teach us that the Lord does see. And His justice requires punishment for transgression. We're struck by the language of the catechism here in question 10. He is terribly angry with sins. But what this means is that God's anger is part of His being. God is not this jovial Santa Claus or a heavenly Opa. God is love. Yes, He is goodness, but He is also just. And He is angry with sins just as much as He loves lost sinners. His justice and His mercy are part of who He is. And so there's two objects of God's wrath. There's original sins. We've already touched on that. That refers to that state in which we are all born in. David famously teaches this in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's speaking of original sin. But actual sins are the manifestation of that state. You're born in sins, 
But then sins spring up from inside, don't they? A helpful way to think of this, an analogy might be to think of original sin like a field, a farmer's field. But actual sins are like the weeds that grow in the field. These are our daily sins. Our lusts, our covetousness, our lack of reverence, our fear of man rather than God, our desire for our own glory. And the testimony of the Scriptures is that God cares both about original and actual sins. Nahum chapter 1 says, God is jealous. The Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. Psalm 7 says, God is is a just judge and is angry with the wicked every day. People might say to you, as they say to me very often, well, that's the Old Testament God. Jesus brings His grace. But even Christ Himself said, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God abides on Him. God is angry with sins because when people sin, His holy name is maligned. He is dishonored. When someone sins, it is a direct offense to Him. And nowhere is this more seen than in Psalm 51. David has sinned with Bathsheba, the sin of adultery. And when he finds out Bathsheba is with child, what does he do? Her son, he tries to get her to go see her husband Uriah. But he will not go with her because his soldiers are in the field. And instead of owning up to his mistake, he has Moriah killed in battle. He murders Uriah. And then you read this statement in Psalm 51, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. And you think, what are you talking about, David? You just killed Uriah. You had committed adultery with Bathsheba. You're the king of the whole nation. You've sinned against all of those people and Bathsheba and Uriah. How can you say against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned? But he has a heart touched by the law. He's seeing that I was disobedient to God first. I resisted God I did war with Him. And so God was displeased with Him. And so God likewise is displeased with actual sins. He is displeased with when parents lose their temper with their children. He is displeased when we lust. He is displeased when we covet. He is displeased when we make war with God. And so the consequences of God's wrath is that those who sin will be punished. And God does not delay His judgment. The Catechism says that God will punish sins with a just judgment both now and in eternity. Ursinus, who was the primary author of the Heidelberg Catechism, he gives a helpful word here where he talks about affliction that we'll experience in this life. It can be a temptation for Christians. We'll say when we experience affliction, is God punishing me for my sins? We all endure 
sickness and poverty, reproach, abandonment, war, misery. How are we to think about such afflictions? And he gives this helpful word. He says, afflictions in this life can either be punishment or the cross. For the wicked, all afflictions that they endure in this life are punishment. God gives these punishments to the world as a means of making satisfaction for the justice of God. But for the righteous, when they endure suffering and ailments and tragedy and trials, it is the cross. They are not punishments for sins. They are not inflicted for the purpose of satisfying God's justice. But they may be His chastisement for sins. They are trials that will produce in us a greater faith, a greater hope, a greater love. They are trials that will be witnesses to the world how we endure all things in the faith of Christ. And finally, the cross was given to us, at the cross was given to us Christ's obedience. And we were ransomed to God through Him. The afflictions that we endure in this life are not punishments as Christian people. And in eternity, our God is an eternal God. And therefore, when we sin against Him, we commit an act of eternal treason. And so when God gave His law, He accompanied it with a curse, says the Catechism. Cursed is everyone who does not obey and observe all the things written in the book of the law. That's from Deuteronomy 27. God says, there are curses and condemnation upon every transgressor of this holy law, and God must punish them both now and in eternity. His word, His justice, and His truth, His person require it. Now congregation, I think we should be glad this evening that God doesn't just look the other way. Imagine if you were part of the persecuted church this evening. And these are real, literal accounts of people whose wives are dragged out of their homes and raped and murdered. There are children who are kidnapped and forced to kill other Christians. All your worldly possessions taken. For them, God's judgment upon evil is a comfort. You see, God's morality, His justice, His making all evils aright is actually bringing balance to a world that is afflicted with sins. You see this in the Psalms where the righteous take comfort that God is just. So we want to conclude this evening with question 3, excuse me, question 11, speaking of the mercy of God. I thought God was merciful. You see, there's a danger that sometimes we can suppress God's justice in an attempt to magnify God's mercy. We think when we're evangelizing and sharing the Gospel, I won't address that justice subject. I'll only highlight His mercy. And it is true. God is loving. He is merciful. But to emphasize His mercy without His justice is to make mercy meaningless. When we minimize God's justice, we don't exalt His mercy In fact, we undermine 
His mercy. An illustration we're all probably familiar with is having teenagers who might be disobedient. Who might practice things that are contrary to what we ask them to do. Drunkenness, disrespect of authority, etc., etc. If you are a parent of a child who is disobedient, you know this answer is looking the other way and ignoring the problem mercy. The answer is no. What mercy means is forgiveness. And mercy is only at its full power. Mercy is only ever sweet when we see it not just as goodwill towards us, but a pardoning of people who stand condemned. Justice says you are guilty, but mercy says you are forgiven. But isn't God also merciful? The answer, God is certainly merciful. We should be certain of this. When the Lord appears to Moses on the mount, He proclaims to him in a revelation of His nature that He, yes, He is just, but He is also merciful. He is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy, forgiveness, pardon for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He is merciful, meaning that He offers forgiveness for condemned people. He is gracious. He offers pardon from sins for all who come to Him. He is long-suffering, meaning that He is slow to anger and He delays His judgment so that He might lengthen His offers of mercy. He is abundant in good and truth, meaning that He has made promises to His people and He is faithful to forgive them. He forgives iniquity and transgressions, meaning that He will pardon ruined sinners by His grace. He is all of these things. And He is just. And so the question of the Reformation, the tension of the Bible, how can God be just and be merciful? How can He be the just and justify the sinner? Dear congregation, don't we know He is all of these things in Christ. God doesn't look the other way when His children fall into sin, but He exercises all of these attributes towards the faithful in the giving of His Son and subjecting Him to the punishment we are due for our sake. There is only one way God can be just and merciful. And that is in Christ. The Belgic Confession puts it this way. I love how poetic our confession is. It says, So God made known His justice towards His Son, who is charged with our sin, and He poured out His goodness and mercy on us. We who were, worthy of, who were guilty and worthy of damnation, He gave His Son to die by a most perfect love. Article 20. Don't go home this evening without this truth. Yes, God is certainly merciful. He is merciful to us 
We are the recipients of His mercy. But not because God has looked the other way. Because He has ceased to be just. But because His justice was poured out upon His Son. His Son was forsaken upon the cross. That's what makes mercy sweet. That's what makes mercy powerful. We were rescued from God's justice. From His wrath. From the cross. We were rescued by the cross of Christ. So in conclusion this evening, we need a God who makes moral judgments. We need a God who is ethical. We need a God who gives His law. Because without God's justice, the pain and the injustice we endure would be without purpose. Without God's justice, God would not be good. Without God's justice, He would cease to be He who is revealed in the Word. God loves justice. God's people love justice. And God loves sinners. And in order to give us His mercy, His justice needed to be paid in full in Christ. And He has done it. Amen. Let us pray together this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we do give You thanks this evening that Your justice has not been ignored. Your justice for sins has been poured out upon Your dearest Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who cried out on the cross, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? We know the answer to that call. You have forsaken Your dear Son. You have poured out Your justice upon Jesus Christ because You loved us, lost sinners, who sinned corporately in Adam, but also individually each and every day. We thank You for this love that is ours in Christ. And we pray, God, that it would be our glory and our song for the rest of our days. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.